Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Suzanne Moore steps in for Cosmo in 321 Go. Then our OA colleagues speak with former Congressman Nick Rahal and Jack Basso, veteran of highways and federal government and now consultant, about the most recent infrastructure package out of Washington. And last up, two minutes with Tom. Welcome, this is Suzanne Morris, and uh, this is 321 Go. I'm filling in for Cosmo Macero this week, and of course I have the uh, my wonderful colleague, Cayenne Isaacson, joining me. Hello. So, Cayenne, I thought we would start this week by talking about what has been all the rage on uh, Twitter and social media, which is the new Jeopardy host. Uh, yes, technically co-hosts, I guess, but I... I it seems like a little bit of a cop-out. Um, there was a headline on Yahoo last night that said, just give my MBIOC the real hosting job on Jeopardy, you cowards. <laughs> um, which I thought was very funny and and interesting to kind of pick apart. Um, you know, anyone who's watched Jeopardy for a long time knows who Mike Richards is. Um, he was obviously a contender all along, but I think people thought that this was an opportunity to branch out and yeah. maybe, uh, have someone that, that looks a little bit differently than uh, Alex Trebek did that could have really honored him. Um, and there were a lot of really good guest co-hosts over the course of this past year, some that I was really surprised by too. Aaron Rodgers, I thought, did a really great job. Um, but my Alec is going to be doing like special edition primetime and spinoffs. I didn't even know that Jeopardy had those. So I'm excited to see what she's going to do. But for now, Mike Richards taking the helm. Yeah. So a couple things on that. One is it sounds like you actually watched um, the various guest hosts. I did not. I am not a regular watcher of Jeopardy. Uh, so uh, you know, I wanted to know, do you, did you have strong feelings about, uh, you know, who the guest host should be and, and sort of what your favorite, who your favorite was? And it sounds like Aaron Rodgers did an excellent job, which, you know, good for him. He did do a good job, I think, because it was surprise, you know, yeah. no disrespect, right. but it's not what you're thinking yeah. um, for to be a natural host. I don't know that he was my favorite. I don't, I used to watch as a child, I watched religiously with my dad. Um, now I just kind of like, if it's on and I'm in front of a TV, I will put it on. Um, I saw Katie Cork. I saw Anderson Cooper. I did see Maya Bialik. I saw Aaron Rodgers, um, George Stephanopoulos. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think a lot of those people would have really liked the job too. But for many of them, it was just kind of fulfilling a childhood dream or a bucket list item, so to speak. Um, what I thought was really interesting is that a while back, Alex Trebek had said who he thought should be his replacement. Um, and none of those seem to have been considered. But Mike Richards does seem like the natural passing of the torch just because he's been part of the quote-unquote Jeopardy family for so long. But I think it's a little disappointing in 2021 that of all the people, you know, LeVar Burton was yeah. um, a big favorite for a while. Uh, I think Mayim was, Katie Court, you know, that it could have been a person of color. It could have been a woman, right. it could have, you know, any of these things. And ultimately we ended up with a white man. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that that is what jumps out at me as 
um, you know, I guess the one question I want to ask you is, um, what did you make of the sort of strong social media reaction all along through this process? And, you know, that's where I was watching most of this. And there was, at least on Twitter, there was a, a real groundswell of support for someone like LeVar Le Burton. I think for a couple of reasons. One is I think people do have a good, uh, you know, warm memories of him hosting Reading Rainbow. But I also think that uh, people were, to your the point you were making, you know, want to see different kinds of representation. They want to see black and brown people in these roles and that, or women or, or someone who's not just another white man. So, um, you know, what did, uh, what was your thought on how much this was being debated on Twitter? Uh, not surprising. I mean, this is a conversation that's made for Twitter, I think, um, because you can have a lot of different opinions. Sky's the limit on who could have been options. Jeopardy really was listening, I think, to a certain extent to get feedback from uh, viewers. It also makes you realize how many people have strong feelings or a tie to Jeopardy in some way, shape, or form. It's just one of those shows where, you know, for me, like similar to me, I watch it from time to time now, but uh, growing up, like the seven, the seven o'clock, seven thirty hour Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy in in my house was always a pretty big deal, um, and very, very religiously watched. And people, I think it's it makes them feel good. And the person to everyone liked Alex Trebek. Um, he made you feel good. He was smart. He wasn't condescending. Um, and I think people really just wanted to feel like whoever was going to take the reins was going to be able to keep Jeopardy in in the manner in which it has been for so long. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think a lot of this interest is in the fact that people feel very warmly about Alex Trebek and, you know, whoever comes next, and now we know who it is, um, they'll have big shoes to fill. The, the point that you made about them extending the brand is really interesting, too. I think that, you know, they are, are making a conscious choice to signal that they're going to be... <laughs> And there's going to be an extended Jeopardy universe, and obviously that's the role that Maya Bialik is going to be uh, fulfilling. So that's an it, it, that is interesting too. Um, you know, game shows had their sort of heyday in the '70s and '80s. It's interesting to see that Jeopardy is trying to recapture, I think, uh, some of that old magic. And with a face who, you know, if. if she was blossom uh when i was when i was a kid then she was uh you know sort of resurrected her acting career on big bang theory for god it had to have been eight or nine years uh she's also incredibly smart she's like a doctorate in neuroscience so um and she's and she's funny and i think she'll do a great job at whatever she does i don't know what it is yet because what they're describing for her role doesn't exactly exist right now uh, but, you know, more to come from Jeopardy, I hope. I don't want it to go away. We shall see. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is this story that was in uh, the Boston Globe. Um, a story by Stephen Year about um, a new Facebook page that highlights uh, some of the more... Uh, entertaining let's say posts that people find from their their hometown facebook groups and uh the uh 
the group has been founded by uh, a guy by the name of Anthony Varela. I believe he has a TikTok page where he's he takes out different posts and sort of reacts to them, etc. I still don't have TikTok, so I don't really understand how he does that. Um, but I think it, you know, it speaks to the ubiquity of uh, Facebook pages, hometown Facebook pages. So um, my question for you is, do you read your hometown Facebook page with a, uh, any regularity? And do you see any of this kind of behavior? Yes and yes. Um, I My town's hometown's Facebook page can get pretty nasty. I'm always shocked to see, you know, people that I went to high school with or sort of knew at an arm's distance or in some ways know a bit better. Um, and the things that they unleash on people on Facebook, I, it's, I would never have half of these conversations in a public forum. I think I wonder if they forget sometimes that it's such a public forum. Um, you know, when I started in state government, and I'm sure you'll under, you'll remember having been told this too, working in uh, Kennedy's office a long time ago, but it was like never put in writing what you wouldn't want on the front page of the paper. Right. Um, and I think that that lives in my head, um, probably takes up more real estate than it should some days. But knowing that having that in the back of my mind, I think definitely makes me think about interactions on social media differently than perhaps other people who don't operate in that field and have never had anyone tell them that. Um, just because these groups are quote unquote private does not mean they are not incredibly public. Uh, and quite honestly, I think some people should be downright ashamed of themselves because they're <laughs> decent and rude and nasty. And that's just no way to behave. Uh, among fellow human beings um this man in his tiktok page i think it is made better by the fact that he has a very strong boston accent whether you're from boston or not it just makes it all funnier and he has now started his own facebook page the town facebook group ridiculousness just so people can share screenshots of their town page Facebook groups and the ridiculous conversations that happen on them. I love it. So uh, you, I, I'm wondering what you think of the dynamic, and I think it's probably a dynamic that you and I share. I'm on a couple of Facebook pages for my hometown, but I don't live there anymore. And I think that's, you know, the same mm -hmm. with you. And I wonder what you think about that dynamic, you know, in terms of a, you know, what it says about the quality of conversation, you know, a lot of it is, is people reminiscing, but also be um, what it, how, how do you think it ends up impacting the decision makers in, in those communities? I mean, a, how do you think it is in general, if they're seeing, you know, just well, they're on one of these Facebook groups, but secondly, if there are people who are chiming in who haven't lived in their community in 10 or 15 years saying, well, I remember what it was like this. I mean, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how the um, town officials end up kind of reacting to those kinds of uh, posts. So what I've seen both personally and professionally in people in, in groups that we've worked with is there are some towns where their town managers or selectmen or what have you, um, are active and then there are where they're not often it's a mix 
So you'll have like it, for my um, uh, hometowns page, for example, some of the selectmen are very active. They're commenting, they're responding to questions, um, sometimes setting the record straight, which I actually think is really helpful uh, in being a bit of a voice for the town, but that can get very dicey very quickly. Um, but they're able to bring to the conversation amongst themselves as a group thoughts and opinions that they're hearing, right? So there's value there. However, what's important to remember is that what we are hearing on a town Facebook group is still a very small subset yeah. of the entire town and often, or city, um, often, as we know, people that are negative and have bad things to say are often the loudest. So I think it can be an incredibly powerful tool, but it can't be the only tool for listening, engaging, how, it, how a group of residents in a municipality feel about any certain issue. And these pages do get very politicized, especially, I think, you know, right now, if you stumble on any of them, you're probably going to find multiple posts about the mask debate in schools, particularly. Um, I've seen petitions rolled out, uh, vaccine questions, teachers should have to, I mean, it, it doesn't stop. And I think what should be a nice place for people to come and share and, and kind of convene quickly spirals and it only takes you know one person there's always one um that go in and they just kind of pick for the sake of i think their own entertainment yeah <laughs> well and to the point that you're making and that you made a little bit earlier i mean do you have a sense that um and i think we both do have a sense but you know how the conversation is different if it's on facebook versus if it's a neighbor, you know, or if you're meeting in a, at a coffee shop or, or, you know, whatever public place that you, you meet, um, what is it about Facebook that makes it such that conversations that would be had in a community face-to-face -face become much nastier when they're had on, on Facebook? You know, it's an interesting point because we, we used to say that about uh, the people who comment on news stories sure, um, yeah. because they can be nameless and faceless and it's like screenshot guy 225 or whatever. Um, and yeah, you can be as brazen as you want, but on these Facebook groups, that's not the case. Your face, your name, most likely you do know these people or may come across them. Um, I am consistently shocked by the brazenness in which people speak to one another or about issues. And again, I think that even though they know that they're they're speaking to people who might know who they are, they're not thinking about this as a very public forum. Um, and now that these pages are going to be screenshotted and shared on a larger, more national page that has now been started, um, that might be a bit of a reminder. But people should remember that not only is it not actually private just because the group is private and you had to get permission to join um a lot of reporters and media outlets are members of these pages because this yeah. is where they find people to comment on stories or they find news items they find breaking news um which means your post could be on the five o'clock news um and when you think about it that way i do wonder if people would 
speak differently or behave differently if they were thinking about this in the larger context of it being just as public, if not more so, because you have a bigger audience than if you were having a conversation with your neighbor across the street. Well, so to your point about uh, local reporters being on the uh, on these pages, um, you know, our final topic of discussion this week is uh, we have to kind of lift up the work of Dan Kennedy and his blog, DanKennedy.net. He has been reporting a regular go and OA exactly a frequent guest <laughs> of uh, OA on air. He has been uh, tracking, particularly over the last month or so. Um, the fact that Gannett has uh, closed down a number of different local papers. And they're doing it in a way, they're not making kind of large announcements. I think they are announcing it in the communities, but he's being informed by people in those communities. It's not like Gannett you know, sent out a press release or let people know. So what do you think of this strategy that they're employing to kind of quietly shutter these newspapers? Uh, I mean, it... it it's probably one I would tell them to do if I were in charge. Um, but it's not shocking. I mean, you yeah. certainly don't want to publicize any more than you have to. You have to let your direct constituents and readership know that they'll no longer be receiving a paper or have access to an online site because it won't exist anymore. Um, you know, we've talked about this for the past couple of years, multiple times on this podcast, but it is a sad state of affairs for local media, yep. uh, not just in Massachusetts, we should note, um, and not just with this media group. Uh, there are so many others like it that are having to shut down or, you know, getting creative and, and merging. What it's resulted in is a lot less people to cover just as much, if not more, news than ever before. Um, and these just sort of voids uh, throughout, you know, in Massachusetts, throughout Massachusetts of good, solid local media coverage. And when we think about local media coverage, one of the things we forget is that it's also, it's town meeting minutes. It's yeah. access to what's happening. It, this is important news. Uh, it's often one that we don't immediately think of. Most people think of the big players, um, you know, the Globe and the Herald, I guess, here in Massachusetts, or maybe your regional paper. But your local community paper was where you're finding out about what's happening down the street from your home. And that's really important. And when it goes away, voids exist. And what's, unfortunately, what it's being filled with is Facebook groups. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I will say, so one of the papers, you know, I have a personal connection to one of the papers that has been shut down, the Hudson Sun. My father was a teacher. He taught both uh, junior high school and high school in the town of Hudson for 20 years. And I still have, in the late 80s, my father was, or, well, in the 80s, he was the head of the uh, Education Educators Association in the town of Hudson. And in the late 80s, they went through a strike. And I still have an editorial that was written in the Hudson Sun um, about my dad. Now, at the time, they didn't name it, um, the person that, you know, the, the editorial was about. Um, they didn't name it of my father, but we all knew it was, and he told us it was. Um, and, you know, that was about a teacher strike. You know, there were important issues for the people in that community to know. 
Mm-hmm. And so to know that, you know, to know that that uh, resource is going away, because, you know, it's sad. And the other part of it that's sad is some of these papers have very long traditions. They're over 100 years old. And so what happens to that history, too? Um, you know, I, I do think I, I do think people do need to understand the difference between a um, newspaper and a Facebook group, <laughs> as I think you're pointing out. Yes, they are not interchangeable. <laughs> should they be? Uh, Facebook groups are not um, unbiased, objective sources. Um, and, you know, also on a sort of warmer and fuzzier note, for most young people, the first time you ever see your name in the paper is your local paper because Absolutely. you made honor roll or yep. you made the varsity team or you acted in a local play. Um, and those little accolades along the way as a, as a child and growing up that, that make you feel good. Um, there's, to your point, like there's history being lost and there's also just these opportunities that aren't going to exist uh, for our, like, you know, next generation of children, which is, you know, while it's not the end of the world, it's certainly sad. It absolutely is. Well, Cayenne, we have now come to an end. We have to a three, two, one, go for this week. Thank you for stepping in for Cosmo. We always appreciate it. I'm happy to, and uh, look forward to the next time. Happy Friday, everyone. This is Jen Crouch, and I'm a Vice President at O'Neill & Associates. I am joined this morning by uh, Vice Chairman John Cahill and Senior Vice President Andy Pavin. We have two special guests with us today, former Congressman Nick Rahal and Jack Basso, a veteran of highways and federal government and now a consultant. We thought this would be a great opportunity as the dust settles in Congress and they all clear out for the August recess to reconnect and talk about what just happened. Certainly all eyes were on the Senate this August after the work the House had done in July to look at infrastructure. Uh, to frame the conversation quickly, on July 1st, the House of Representatives passed the INVEST Act, a very large reauthorization of a multi-year surface transportation reauthorization inclusive of a number of plus ups and additional programs focused on climate change and water as well. The Senate passed their um, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is their version of a bipartisan uh, infrastructure package that is a little bit different and watered down, but certainly all that more important and transformational and certainly looking to plus up programs that have not been plus up in generations. So we thought this would be a wonderful time to get a couple of veterans who are experienced in this space to get their insight. And I'll turn it over to John Cahill. Thanks, Jen. Appreciate it. So um, prior to this being recorded, we asked each other the critical question, what is in the Senate bill and where do we go from here? So I, I in a way, I want to kick it to Jack and Nick and have them uh, comment in any way they wish, but it certainly this thing is not done as we know and uh the house the leadership in the house and chairman defazio is going to have to make some decisions about what to do with the massive bipartisan underscored bipartisan senate bill so have at it gents uh i served 38 years in the congress chairman of the house natural resources committee under the first speakership pelosi reign from 07 to 2011 
and uh, ended up my career in the Congress in 2014 as the ranking Democrat on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, uh, upon which I had served my entire 38 years uh, in the Congress. What I have seen recently uh, has been heartening in seeing the bipartisan action in the Senate and getting an infrastructure bill over to the House. That may be just a flash in the pan because a lot tougher work comes uh, up. Uh, the reconciliation package, for example, which is a separate, separate budget resolution from the infrastructure package that passed bipartisanly. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of really tough hurdles are yet to come. This whole process uh, kind of reminds me of decades ago when our co-operators in West Virginia used to sign coal contracts with the Japanese. They'd sign the contract and think the deal was done. Well, remember a couple months ago, the congressional leaders came out of the White House and said, we have a deal, the deal is done. It wasn't anywhere near a deal at that time. There was a lot that occurred since then. And it's kind of like the Japanese. When they sign a contract, that's when they start negotiating. <laughs> and that's what's happened in this whole process. We had a big hoopla blah a couple months ago in the White House lawn. We have a deal. We have a deal. And then it just got tougher after that. Uh, words started going back and forth and uh, people started demanding this and demanding that, and everybody thought the infrastructure deal, the bipartisanship, was just going down the drain. Uh, but everybody had to stake out their positions. That's part of the political nature, as we all know. Uh, and, and so that happened in the ensuing months. And fortunately, they came back together and did strike a deal and did pass the bipartisan, as John has emphasized, uh, infrastructure bill out of the House. Now it goes over to the, or out of the Senate, I'm sorry, out of the Senate. Now it goes over to the House. The House has already passed a pretty robust bill that meets a lot of the progressive demands in the House of Representatives. In the House, it's gonna be a very tough road to hoe. Chairman Peter DeFazio is a tough negotiator. Uh, he does legitimately feel slighted that he was not involved in earlier negotiations with the White House or with the other body. And he's going to let that be known quite clearly in the weeks and months ahead as the House considers this bill. The House Progressive Caucus has made it clear where they stand. And they claim at least 10 votes against the House or the Senate, against the Senate bipartisan deal because it doesn't include their agenda. Not enough for climate change, for example, and, and a lot of the other social issues that are in the progressive agenda. So they're gonna be a problem in the House. Uh, and Speaker Pelosi thus far, thus far is, seems to be acceding to the progressive demands. Number one, they're requesting, they're demanding that the House not even take up the Senate bipartisan infrastructure bill until the Senate passes the separate budget reconciliation upon which they took the initial steps the other night, very late in the morning at night, uh, but still a long road to go on that, not anywhere near final passage at this moment. And so the House Progressive Caucus 
uh, led by Speaker Pelosi, is saying we won't take up that Senate bill until the Senate passes the reconciliation budget, which has a lot more of what the progressive agenda is all about, included in that package. Uh, the reconciliation, the initial vote was 50 to 49, clearly bipartisan. Uh, I'm sorry, clearly partisan, unlike the infrastructure package that was bipartisan. So that 50 to 49 vote is very, very fragile because not all 50 Democrats that got it going uh, are on board as the progress goes along, including my senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who's made it very clear in a statement after that vote uh, that he has grave concerns with the 3.5 billion price tag about passing a huge, more huge debt onto our children, grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there are other Democrats, moderate Democrats, that feel that way as well. They may not be saying it publicly, but Joe Manchin is speaking for them uh, when he makes those uh, statements that he's making. So it's a long slug ahead. Uh, the action on the bipartisan Senate infrastructure bill is in the House now. The action on the budget resolution uh, is still, reconciliation bill is still in the Senate and has a long way to go in that body before it gets over to the House, which uh, the House is waiting to see. Uh, so far, they're saying we're going to wait and see what happens on that before taking up infrastructure. Right. So that's basically the broad outline, as I see it, where we are now. So, Jack, it, uh, the politics of it are still unclear, obviously. Nick is right on target there that we really don't know yet how the House is going to respond, say, the first week of September or post-Labor Day to the package. But in terms of the substance of the Senate bill, do you want to editorialize a bit on the numbers and how things have changed so dramatically and that, that the pay-fors are not the gas tax and the, they're not vehicle miles traveled, they're not even related to um, uh, transportation. And obviously there's further, for want of a better term, there's, want, uh, there's a further borrowing from the treasury to support the highway trust fund. So I know, you know, you're very familiar with the, not very, you're exquisitely familiar with the history on how these things are done over the last 35 years. What do you think of this approach? Well, thank you, John. Uh, what I think is going into this, we're in that very delicate stage where there's a lot of congratulatory activity going on. It was a major accomplishment, historic accomplishment to get this bill out of the Senate. But if anybody thinks this is going to be a cakewalk from here, uh, they need to think twice. There's a lot of things that can go wrong along the way. One of the things, this is an overarching comment, that uh, from my experience, the longer a bill is around, particularly the Senate bill, the more trouble starts because people begin to realize what's really in it. <laughs> it's the longest transportation reauthorization bill in my memory. I thought I'd seen them all. 2,700 pages of infrastructure activity. Uh, now I've read it, God help me, and uh, there are things in there that will cause some problems later. But let me talk on the positive side. Number one, what's historic about this, this is the single largest authorization of investment, really, uh, in the history of, of the uh, 
transportation activity in, in the Congress. However, the interstate system, if you did them in current dollars, the ad authorization would have been bigger, but this one is massive uh, and it increases as much as 30, 40% over the current safety and uh, fast act activity. So it's a huge difference. A few things to highlight, there's something in here for everyone in the surface transportation area. Robust bridge authorizations, passenger and freight, safety research, public transit, broadband is an additive that you never saw in these bills previously. Airport uh, uh, AIP program authorizations, ports, waterways, water infrastructure, power grid, clean school and buses and ferries, and electric vehicle charging stations. Reconnecting grants, which are really directed toward correcting the divisions that were created by the interstate system coming through the urban areas, doing something to reconnect cities internally. Uh, also, pollution, meaning climate change activity, and Western water infrastructure, which is again a rather large thing. This whole thing adds up close to 1.1 trillion dollars and when you get in here in the just the surface area alone it's about 600 billion largest bill i can remember is going all the way back to t21 which we thought didn't get bigger than that 325 billion this one makes it look like yesterday's news and quite uh, <laughs> huge and one of the things that I think has now been exposed pretty heavily, no surprise to me, frankly, that this has about a $400 billion deficit impact. The party line was this is fully paid for, well, it's not. Uh, and the big offset for this thing is really uh, being paid for out of activity that's currently out there from funds that were, would probably have been used or something else, but it's not fully offsetting it by any means. Give me an example, going back to a T21, not the first time we came up with something extraneous to pay for the bill. The uh, Veterans Administration, Veterans Affairs, uh, tobacco offset paid for about $50 billion of the T21 bill. A lot of people don't realize that. So it's not the first time we've come up with some Interesting thing. My favorite in this personal favorite is pension smoothing. We have smoothed these pensions to where they lean like glass in every bill, and they're absolutely worth nothing, frankly. True. <laughs> but whatever works, you know, you do what works, and that works. And as to the uh, particulars, I think there's something in here for everyone. I think that this is one of those things a little like uh, NASA activity Apollo 13. Failure is not an option. Uh, if this bill fails and the whole overall structure fails, it will be a political disaster for the White House and the Congress. And so it's going to have to work. I do think I can share Congressman Reynolds' views. Uh, Mr. DeFazio is a very smart and a little prickly at times, so he's not going to be happy with where he's at. And they're going to have to make some changes to accommodate 
his views if they want to get this thing through, particularly since they've got the progressives in the House that could they walk off, take the whole thing down. Budget resolution, most people don't even understand what that thing is. That dates back to the Budget Accounting Act of 1973. And its theoretical purpose is to reconcile revenue to what you're going to appropriate. Now, that's a very loose term, but it's critical here. The one thing to know too on that is you can't add policy activities to the budget resolution. It can only be basically tax issues, funding, things of that nature. So you can't fix any of the infrastructure bill policy in the budget resolution. So we'll see how it plays out. There's going to be a huge deficit impact. Uh, we talk about raising taxes on corporations. That probably will happen, but that's not going to be greeted with great joy. And we have a long way to go, I think. So I'll stop there for a moment. <laughs> well said, <Yeah>. Jack. <laughs> well said. Andy, what do you think of the, the, uh, the politics of this, the scene? Uh, Obviously, you know, the, uh, the bill in the Senate did very well on the bipartisan basis and, you know, amazing number. But the House, and I want you to give me, the, give me the view on the politics, but the House doesn't have a contingency of Republicans anymore who uh, would come together and compromise with Democrats. At least that's my view. You know, there's no... Um, that you just don't have 20 Republicans who suddenly turn around and say, well, we're going to help Peter DeFazio out and support the bill. They don't exist. There may be three of them, but there ain't 20 of them. So what do you think of the politics of the situation now? Well, not only the Republicans having to agree, but um, before we even get there, we need to get all the Democrats on one side, since there clearly is a split at this point between the progressive wing and the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, there was, a, there was an interview within the last couple of days with our own um, home state congresswoman, Ayanna Presley, about it. And, you know, as I read the transcript of the interview, when the reporter would ask about what happens next, she would go back to, well, there are many things we want to see included before we know what happens next. And so to me, the question is, you know, it's no until we get to yes, no on agreement until we get to yes. Um, but we have to achieve that first on the Democratic side of the aisle before we can even think about whether there are any members of the, of the Republican Party that will join. One question I'm really curious about, um, and really from all three of you, you know, I'm reminded of the song from Hamilton, In the Room Where It Happens, because all three of you have been in many rooms where transportation funding at the federal level happen. Mm. Um, and a lot of that conversation takes place in private. It's, it's not, it's not the, the, the classic smoke filled room because there are, you know, much more very, you know, much more um, diverse members who are included, but it, it strikes me as harder these days with 24 hour news and Twitter and so forth that we're kind of taking the temperature of the patient every 14 seconds and trying to determine and that the, the, the current temperature isn't what's important, what's, what's interesting to viewers or online readers, it's, you know, what's the outcome going to be? And as everybody has said already, 
we don't really know at this point what the final outcome will be. And I just wonder whether you all think it's, it, it's harder to get to yes with sort of a, you know, a, a brighter spotlight and sort of a magnifying glass on every iteration, every sort of day's conversation as we move forward. I mean, the Senate managed to do it, and, and I do think it's, it, it, you know, it's really impressive. But as far as what happens next, I just wonder if it's harder than the than past, if you think it will be harder than past transportation bills have been on that regard. Yeah. Well, I defer to, uh, to uh, the former member uh, first because he knows how negotiations occur behind closed doors. And, and then, as you say, in this case, it talk, it, the Senate did very well in that, but much of this has just taken place in public and that's pretty unusual. So Nick, what do you think? Yeah, you know, call me the eternal optimist or whatever, but I, I really think in the end, uh, we will get an infrastructure package. I don't know when, but uh, Jack referenced it's uh, failure is not an option. Uh, this bill is too big to fail. Now, coming out of the Senate, you know, you had Mitch McConnell, you had the 19 or 20 Republicans that voted for it, giving all kinds of these reasons why they voted for it, uh, holier than thou, and oh my gosh, I, I practiced good politics for change. I'm a good boy or girl because I did the right thing. Uh, it took away the filibuster threat from the Democrats, I mean, from the Republicans, that is, it took away uh, Manchin's possibly voting to change the filibuster and other uh, Democrats that have so far stood publicly against changing the filibuster, but had this bill failed, they just might have gone to the rest of the Democratic side and voted to change the filibuster. So McConnell's saying that's one reason he voted for the infrastructure bill. Uh, okay, uh, Jack, you read the bill. What, what do you really get in the bill for Kentucky? <laughs> so uh, I'm sure every one of those 20 senators, despite their holy the now positions, got something in the bill. That's going to happen in the House as yeah. well. I don't know whether there'd be enough to get the 20 Republicans that are needed or whatever. But, uh, you know, a lot of that's going on underneath the surface or it will go on in the final, final hours of negotiation on this bill. Remember the days when the senators were against uh, uh, earmarks, John? Oh, oh yeah. no, those are bad. And yet come into the conference, Jack, you may recall at the final seconds and pull all kinds of envelopes out of their pockets with earmarks written on them and get yeah. them in a final transportation bill. Yeah. Uh, you know, the old saying, two things you don't want to see made, sausage and laws. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what's happening here. And, uh, you know, senators are politicians. They have to go out and make their public statements for their constituents, for their bases. Uh, they have to say the right things, push the right buttons in public. Uh, they have to have the rope to run with. Uh, as my good senator, Joe Manchin certainly needs that rope to run because of the state from which he comes. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden know where Manchin's going to end up in the end, uh, but they know he has to have the running room in between 
to do whatever he wants, really, and say whatever he wants. And Democrats may not like it, but hey, would you rather have Mitch McConnell as majority leader? So, yep. you know, that, that's where we are. There's going to be a lot of public statements, a lot of nitty gritty that's going to get real tough. Uh, but in the end, in the end, I really think they will come together and uh, pass an infrastructure bill, including the House. I have to say, when I saw $40 billion for bridges, um, I did think of uh, Minority Leader McConnell. Because one of the challenges that I remember back many years ago when, when uh, Jack and I worked together was interstate highways that travel from one state to another over a river. Because both, both states have to agree to the funding for the bridge, and it's always a challenge. And when, we, when you create one pool of funds just for bridges, I have to believe that makes it easier. And I have to believe there are just a few bridges in Kentucky um, that, 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 that the minority leader may have his eyes on. Now, I add to all of that, Andy, you're absolutely right. If you look at, just happen to look at those 20 senators and what might be in their states, I'd say they did pretty well in here. The biggest thing Congressman Rahal mentioned, earmarks are back. And he knows full well, like I do in that room in the last 11th hour, when you can pull out the earmarks and say, we'll add this, we'll subtract that, we'll do this, we'll do that. That makes the deal quite often. And nobody really who isn't in that room understands that quite well, that, that that's a key part of this. And I think it's, I've never been against earmarks because they only represented about 5% of the funding to begin with, but they were the, basically the grease to get things done. And uh, I'm not sorry in so many ways. I mean, not just, uh, I would presume that Peter DeFazio is dangling the earmarks that he included in the House bill out there as you need to support me in dealing with leadership and the Senate because your project is in this bill and it ain't in the Senate bill, you know? So uh, it, it's a facilitation and, and thank, thank goodness he did it. Mm -hmm. Just to, to wrap up in timing, and I have one last question. So we understand that the Senate's out. The House is now saying they're going to come back the week of August 23rd. Right. And I think they're just going to possibly vote on the budget resolution and leave, <laughs> probably come back and uh, take up the infrastructure package after Labor Day, because there's certainly no immediate rush to take care of this bill. It will get done. And then on top of all of this, we still have appropriations to do, right? We haven't taken care of that either. The House has done significant work on that, and the Senate literally just started the process last week of having their committee meetings and markups. So there's a number of different factors kind of all coming into play on parallel tracks at the same time. So if you're, if you're Chairman DeFazio and you've been in that position, Congressman, what are your options as far as responding to the infrastructure bill? I mean, does he consider trying to force a conference, amendments, trying to get some of his elements that were not included from the Invest Act into budget reconciliation? I mean, what are the final um, you know, cards here that he can have to, to play? Nick, do you have a view of that? Well, you know, as we all agree, Chairman DeFazio is a tough negotiator. He is a smart individual. He has always wanted to use uh, 
some oil proceeds, oil company uh, taxes or tariffs or whatever to help fund infrastructure. Uh, and uh, his stepped on Speaker Pelosi's toes in the past. And he's not afraid to do it again. Uh, he wants to work with her, of course, and he will try his darnest to work with her. But uh, in the end, I really feel he's going to want a bill as much as the next person. And he's going to realize that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party cannot be allowed to take this bill down for their own agendas rather than what is good for the country. Uh, I, I really feel that's my gut that tells me that's uh, how Chairman DeFazio feels. Uh, as much as he shares many of the progressive viewpoints, uh, he's not going to let that agenda take the bill down. This is very enlightening, all of you. I appreciate your time. Certainly would love to think that we could come back again, maybe as uh, everyone comes back from recess and I clearing out, reset, um, you know, back in the districts and see what they're saying and to kind of, um, you know, watch how this unfolds. Would love to have your insight and continue this conversation. So thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. It's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken. Good it has. It, it feels like longer. Two uh, two minutes with Cayenne. And two Tom. minutes with Tom. Two and Tom. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. Anyway, you um, we're going to talk about the U.S. Census today. Yes. So census data uh, was released yesterday, Thursday. Um, and it, for anyone that doesn't know, this data is what is used to redistrict uh, for the next decade, um, which read or redraw political boundaries for people who um, may not really know or understand what re redistricting means. Um, this is incredibly important and could have very profound impacts. And depending on how things go, uh, we could see a lot of changes. Every 10 years, uh, secretaries of state take a census to show about the shifting populations and movements of people uh, and the effect that that might have on a, on a drawn line for representatives of Congress and uh, state legislatures. And so those lines get redrawn, as you said, Diane, every 10 years. What, what we've seen here in the last, in the last uh, census, which was released yesterday, was the belief was that during the pandemic, people were leaving the cities and going to more rural areas. Um, and the fact of the matter is, all the major cities in America grew in population over the last years. Um, and in most cases, it's with minorities and people of color. The, that will have a terrific effect on mayor's races. It will have a terrific effect on members of Congress and the state legislature as lines get redrawn for all those legislative categories. Um, we, we know that in redrawing the lines, there's been a lot of politics over the years, making sure that incumbents retain the power in the seats that they've been elected to. And so what we're, what we're seeing now is really an opportunity to redraw lines to reflect where the moving populations live and how they should be represented. And who do you think that benefits right now? 
Democrats, Republicans, United. I think, it, I, I think it probably benefits Democrats, generally speaking, if the lines get redrawn in a way that's honest and, and open. Um, but, you know, we, we have one of our own members of Congress back in the 1800s called Gary, who used to draw lines in, US, in the U.S. House of Representatives while working with our state legislature and drew lines that were not only discontinuous, or discontinuous, but, but were crazy. And so that, there, was a, there was a standard saying that, that districts looking like that, not representing true populations, but jumping over populations in order to get to base supporters was called gerrymandering. I never uh, knew where that came from. Yeah, it came from Massachusetts. Actually, it came from, it came from Gary's Landing in Cambridge. Uh, is, is where his family lived. Um, at any rate, um, we'll be watching the redistricting lines as they get drawn, and we'll see what happens in the 2022 elections, both in state houses as well as in the nation's capital. Mm -hmm. well, we'll pretty, inter pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, and important stuff. Yeah. Well, there I popped off again for two more minutes, Diane. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. I, I, I love being with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.